Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, there's more than just the influx of additional patients for Grady Hospital due to the closure of the Atlanta Medical Center. I'll speak with Dr. Anwar Osborne regarding what the loss of AMC will mean for what he says disaster preparedness, major events, capacity, think about Dragon Con, World Cup, etc., and the well-being of already strained medical professionals. And we'll hear what a member of the Atlanta City Council has to say about the closure of AMC for the district where it's located. All that's just ahead, but first this. Although the Atlanta area won't be impacted and the National Weather Service has canceled any major threats from Hurricane Ian along coastal Georgia, well, forecasters are still keeping a watchful eye. Ryan Willis is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. Now, he told Closer Look earlier, yes, Georgia dodged the worst effects of the hurricane, even along the coast, where water surges are keeping around one to three feet. Really, the only notable and noticeable impacts will be just some breezy conditions today, uh, particularly across east central and and portions of eastern Georgia, um, where you could get some gusts, you know, on the order of 30 to 40 miles per hour in those areas. But for the rest of us, um, just, you know, a, a decent breeze, a few gusts up to 25 to 30 miles per hour. And that's because Ian kept moving eastward after battering Cuba and parts of Florida. So what we really saw over the last couple of days is um, the, the track took a more eastward track along the forecast um, models that we were looking at. So that really put the more you know significant impacts further to our east um, into South Carolina. But even as the hurricane winds down, well, it says the southeast can't let its guard down yet. We're not out of hurricane season yet. You know, technically it runs through the end of November, so we will still need to watch um, as we head through October and the next couple of months. But hopefully um, as we get further from the climatological peak, um, which is in mid-September, hopefully we will start winding things down a little bit. But we do need to continue to watch through the next couple of months. In other news, one of the scheduled Georgia-U.S. Senate debates has been canceled. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali explains that leaves two possible debates between incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock and his two challengers, Republican Herschel Walker and Libertarian candidate Chase Oliver. Mercer University in Macon was set to host a televised debate on October 13th featuring Warnock, Republican Herschel Walker and Libertarian Chase Oliver. In a statement, Mercer's Center for Collaborative Journalism says Warnock and Oliver agreed to the debate, while Walker never responded, leading Mercer and its media partners to cancel. For now, Walker and Warnock have agreed to a televised debate on October 14th in Savannah. That debate does not feature the libertarian Oliver. Finally, Warnock and Oliver have agreed to a televised debate at the Atlanta Press Club on October 16th. The Press Club says Walker has not said yes or no to that debate. 
That debate is expected to move forward with or without Walker. If he doesn't show up, he would be represented by an empty podium. That is what happened in some Republican debates that Walker did not appear in before the May primary. Raul Bali, WABE News. And a note of disclosure, Raul Bali is the co-chair of the Atlanta Press Club debates. Now, Georgia Gwinnett College is officially a Hispanic-serving institution. That's a designation from the U.S. Department of Education. As we hear from Emily Wu Pearson, it means more federal funding for the school. The designation means at least 25 percent of the student body at Georgia Gwinnett College is Hispanic or Latino. George Lowe is the provost there. He says the diversity of the students is a boon for the school. The diversity, although it originated with our location in Gwinnett County, it's grown to the point where students want to come here for that diversity. Lowe says the designation makes Georgia Gwinnett eligible for more federal grants, including one it already received. More than $2 million for increased food pantry services, helping with housing expenses and fees, and paying for internships. Georgia Gwinnett College is the second school in the state to get the designation, after Dalton State College. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. Military veterans in Cobb County now have another option for comprehensive health care. It's a long-awaited VA clinic open this week in Marietta, as we hear from Jess Mador. The new outpatient facility on Cobb Parkway North is offering audiology, physical and occupational therapy, and dental eye and prosthetics services. Over the next couple of months, VA officials say it will also provide primary care and mental health care. The clinic's designed to provide a range of services all in one place, something some metro area military veterans haven't had access to. Once the new Marietta Clinic is fully up and running, it's expected to absorb patients who currently use the Northeast Cobb and South Cobb VA clinics, which are set to close. The West Cobb VA clinic will remain open. Jess Mador, WABE News. Finally, with six games left in the regular season, the Atlanta Braves still have a chance to clinch their fifth straight East Division title. But as Emil Moffitt reports, the Braves face a critical series with those Mets this weekend at Truist Park, weather permitting. Despite being one of baseball's best teams since June 1st, the Braves have spent just one day alone in first place the entire season. But taking two out of three games from the Mets this weekend would leave the two teams tied heading into the Braves' final three-game series next week in Miami. At stake for the Mets and Braves is nearly a week of rest in between the end of the regular season and the start of the playoffs. Wildcard teams have to dive into the postseason almost immediately. Emil Moffat, WABE News. By the way, in case you all care, the St. Louis Cardinals, my team, already clinched the National League Central. Listen to that silence, Daniel. I'm just passing along important information. <laughs> that that's that's what I do. Oh, and and go Braves. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
Support for WABE comes from Out on Film, Atlanta's LGBTQ Film Festival, celebrating its 35th season with 140 films from around the world. Tickets on sale at outonfilm.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As I just mentioned ago, you know, there's more than just the influx of additional patients that Grady Hospital will have to, will get to serve due to the closing of the Atlanta Medical Center. Now, joining me now is Dr. Anwar Osborne, because he's talking about what this closure means beyond also just the influx of patients. Thinking about disaster preparedness, thinking about major events that come to Atlanta, Dragon Con, World Cup, football events, everything, and also the well-being of of already strained medical professionals. Now, Dr. Osborne is an associate professor of both internal medicine and emergency medicine at Emory University, and he serves as an assistant program director for the EM residency. He's been on this program before when we were talking about how COVID-19 was having its impact on residents. So, Doctor, glad to have you back. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come talk about uh, this issue. I want to begin, however, by setting the environment for our listeners. I think we all kind of think we know what happens day to day in an emergency room. But listen, there are no two days alike for doctors and nurses and the staff. If you can, take a moment and take our listeners through what a day, what a full shift is like. Well, um, I work at uh, Grady Memorial and uh, we have one of the largest single site emergency departments on the uh, East Coast. So um, a typical day kind of depends on where you work. The uh, faculty physicians like myself, we manage a uh, team of other physicians and advanced practice providers such as PAs and and nurse practitioners. And uh, we see patients uh, kind of subdivided by uh, the types of complaints. So we have a trauma center where we have mostly uh, physical kind of injuries, uh, uh, car accidents, and uh, other traumatic uh, events. And uh, two-thirds uh, of the ER, the largest part, is uh, more acute medical condition. So persons that might have a heart attack or have abdominal pain that needs to be uh, subdivided into whether or not that's surgical or whatnot. And we have uh, a, a couple of areas that do more urgent care type things that are uh, for patients that come in with lower acuity. And we have mm-hmm. an area for uh, incarcerated patients. We have a psychiatric emergency uh, area also. Uh, and over the course of the day, uh, one faculty could see 20 or 30 patients as a, as a group. We can see uh, in the hundreds mm-hmm. and uh, that might fluctuate based on uh, time of day and weather and uh, you know, events, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it's, uh, it's, it seems chaotic. But, um, uh, you know, I have two kids, and I tell people all the time, there's, uh, it's much less chaos at work than it is at, <laughs> at home. So with two kids, it, can you recall going back to the first time you were on call in the emergency room? Can you recall that for me? Um, Why? Well, uh I've been hanging out in, in the ER. Like I was interested even when I was um, a baby medical student. So mm-hmm. maybe like 2000 was the first time yeah. I was in there. So this may be my 22nd year of ER work. So um, yeah, the, the first times 
uh, I was in the emergency department. I think like my most vivid memories uh, were uh, I did an away rotation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where as a med student, you go to a, another hospital and kind of do like an audition kind of month for them. Uh, and I went to uh, New Orleans uh, and I uh, was at a charity hospital, like the old charity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, just patients uh, everywhere in the hallways. Uh, and uh, there were people there that uh, had uh, injuries that would represent their worst day. Mm. Right. So uh, and uh, there was a lot of fear. And I thought, uh, at the time, I could do something about this. Um, and in that environment, what I really liked about it was, you know, the emotions that I felt and being able to deliver that care and the uh, emotions I felt from being able to work with a team of nurses um, and uh, uh, hospital staff to really try to bring dignity back to people's everyday situations. Dr. Osborne, over the years, how have you been able to manage, because there is a stress level, I think that's fair to say, correct? How have you been able correct. to manage that, balance all of that with the work? Because um, we talked about this with your residents. We'll get to that in a moment. But I just want to hear from you. How have you balanced all of that? Uh, I can't say it's been easy, and I can't say that I've been 100% successful in the mm-hmm. traditional sense. So um, I uh, um, kind of have to take things one day at a time. You know, the uh, good news is about, you know, working as a, uh, a faculty, like your uh, time in the emergency department in the clinical space starts to decrease um, over uh, over the years. So there's a little bit less of that. But I believe that uh, kind of focusing on being present for the patient that's in front of you mm-hmm. is uh, most key. And when you uh, really can isolate and try to find like a, uh, a stillness and make a connection one-on-one, I think that that uh, kind of gives you this internal sort of motor the fuel to kind of keep keep things moving in the right direction uh, and paying attention to like who the sickest people are mm-hmm. uh, in your current environment uh, really helps simplify things and can de- decrease your stress level. Um, that's like one of my uh, teaching points uh, that I really would try to impart on the, on the residents that it's not about uh, the 8 million people that uh, might be in Atlanta at, at any particular time. It's really about the patient that's right in front of you that you can try to affect change with. So kind of keeping all that in balance, I think uh, is key to like my moment to moment wellness Uh, and doing other things like, um, you know, exercise, diet, Mm -hmm. don't drink a whole lot. Um, Those help uh, with my mental resilience. Those moment to moment wellness that you talked about when you are trying to impart this to, to your residents, what questions do they have for you? about that, about that balance, about that mental wellness? Um, well, uh, you probably know this. Um, the the uh, millennial learner is uh, is really what we're training right now, mm-hmm. right? So uh, these these young people have like a totally different relationship with, uh, with work, right? So um, a lot of them talk about work-life balance, like walking in the door of, uh, uh, of a training program. Uh, whereas, you know, back in the olden days, you know, that was uh, very taboo to even talk about. So hmm. um, these folks uh, definitely have a better uh, relationship in some ways. Uh, but, you know, there's a, still a lot of room for growth. Right. So um, there is a space between and this is actually like my 
personal existential teaching crisis for the year is um, mm-hmm. being able to find the words that like can define that space between you know something terrible happens to the ER and you're in, uh, you're part of that. Um, you have to also be well, but we cannot necessarily close the emergency department, mm-hmm. right? Somebody's going to have to do this work. Uh, and um, what I try to impart is uh, to do the work that's in front of you right now. I'm here to help with that. Uh, but when this training is complete, you're going to have to have a uh, internal compass for like what you can tolerate mm-hmm. uh, and what you can shoulder and uh, the needs of the people. Right. So um, our residents now, like the 60 of them and the 100 nurses that we have on staff, you know, I'll take those guys uh, with me into any situation on the face of the earth. Hmm. Right. So, um, but you know, our job in the uh, in the grand scheme of things is to train them and and set them free. So, they need to understand like where they're going to be and when that question comes up for real. And the reason, if listeners are wondering why we're taking this time leading up to what we're going to talk about and the importance of explaining the environment for which we're talking about with Grady and how the closure of the Atlanta Medical Center impacts that. And so I want to get into this. Are there days where there could be what's considered a shortage of folks? And what is it? <laughs> what's that day like? And I'm trying to get out of the, uh, you know, we're trying to take the yeah. listener there so that, that they understand right. this. Right. So, you know, we have uh, uh, to say, I mean, we're short staffed pretty much every day. Really? Um, mostly uh, in in terms of uh, nursing care and, uh, and uh, staff uh that uh supports like the the breadth of the things that we do such as uh transportation to different parts of the hospital uh, technicians that run x-ray machines uh things like that you know there's a a national staffing crisis so Mm -hmm. um that's not unique to grady Mm -hmm. what um what that looks like uh on a particular shift is uh for the uh, er environment um it's one of the few places where uh, a lot of times nurses aren't capped in how many patients they can care for uh, at a time. Well, a floor nurse or a nurse that would be like a, elsewhere in the hospital, like a regular nursing floor or a medical surgical floor, uh, a lot of times they have uh, protections that would dictate they can only take care of, let's say, eight patients at a time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the uh, emergency department, uh, the eight patients that uh, a nurse might be taking care of could have all sorts of illnesses, all the way from like intensive care level kind of critical illness down to, uh, you know, our hurt knee. So um, it can be very busy for a, a single nurse and from that standpoint. Uh, and our residents uh, and the med students that uh, work with are so committed that, you know, we uh, don't always draw as many lines between what's a, a nurse duty uh, and a physician duty. And so, you know, kind of together, we try to advance the care. Because even though there's a, you know, the ideal would be, you know, eight or so patients per nurse, like, uh, if there's patients that are sick, you mm-hmm. know, you have to go see them, right? And somebody has to take care of them. So uh, that number can fluctuate, and it definitely gets harder uh, when we have uh, fewer nurses. So mm-hmm. um, short staff looks a lot like uh, some longer wait times and some more uh, collaborative care that we have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, that can get stressful. That can get stressful for everybody. You and your colleague, Professor Dabney Evans, authored an opinion piece on the impact of Atlanta Medical Center closing. And you all write upon hearing of the closing, quote, ultimately sorrowful for the patients, staff, and trainees who will be directly affected 
by the loss of AMC, close quote. I want to tackle all three, beginning with patients, because that's what you're going to talk about. I'm sure listeners are aware, but besides trauma victims, for many, the ER is also almost like a primary care physician for them. They are un- uninsured or underinsured, however you want to call it. Do you think folks really understand that there are folks who use the ER? They go to the emergency room when they just don't feel good because they don't have a primary care physician for the household. You're absolutely right, and you make a good point. Uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, as you say, the emergency department can function as uh, somebody's primary care uh, office when uh, they can't do things like get medication refills and things of that nature. Uh, and, you know, really, um, a lot of that is not necessarily the function of a uh, patient that's disorganized. A lot of that's a function of uh, the environment in which uh, we've created healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to get a uh, um, it's hard to get a primary care appointment, and getting all of those medications, particularly if you need like public assistance, can require like three or four different steps before you get um, the right kind of uh, aid that can get you these medications. So uh, the ER functions, um, and uh, you know this is what it's from, like it's a safety net. Mm-hmm. So for those sort of situations that that fall through. Uh, it's very easy to uh, be a patient uh, and they, you can have a, a spot on a chest x-ray. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're told, the radiologist is told, you know, have the patient follow up in six months. Um, you know, if you had this sort of situation right around COVID, following up in six months really was going to be hard. Mm-hmm. It was just going to be hard. Uh, and, you know, we in the emergency departments, both, uh, you know, at Gradient and across the city have to deal with this problem. Uh, where these patients didn't have a place to turn to, uh, couldn't get into the office or, or the office is closed uh, because of COVID. And then uh, we have to try to uh, pick up the pieces uh, to try to uh, restart the healthcare process. So um, safety net really comes from looking at the the broader well-being of the people and like how the emergency department ends up, you know, filling in a lot of these gaps um, based on uh, what patients uh, have to go through on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, the voice you hear is Dr. Anwar Osborne. He is an associate professor of both internal medicine and emergency medicine at Emory University. He also serves as, a, as an assistant program director for the EM residency, and as you just heard him say, and also affiliated with Grady Hospital. When those patients who come in for what many of us may feel like is something they could have followed up with a primary care physician, and do they tend to probably have the longest wait, depending on what your, what the assessment is at intake? Uh, well, it depends. depends. Um, it, it's not uh, always, um, it's not always that busy uh, in the emergency department. Sometimes, uh, you know, those patients can be seen and cared for faster. Uh, a lot of times the uh, ways that we triage or you know, subdivide patients into the different areas that can benefit and then sometimes we send folks to our walk-in center uh, where we can handle issues like that, uh, medication refills and things like that. And we have uh, some lower acuity areas. I, I think our Grady leadership, um, particularly in the emergency department, uh, has uh, kind of worked tirelessly to try to find different ways to, to make some efficiency mm-hmm. to uh, uh, get to these patients um, where we might be providing the type of care that somebody might think is not necessarily emergency department care. I mean, there's still... Uh, they're still our patients and they still come seeking care. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you um, uh, more than once that very often folks come in with a, uh, 
what they think is a minor complaint um, mm -hmm. that they thought they were going to go see their primary care doctor about, and they'll end up in surgery like mm -hmm. six or seven hours later. So, um, you know, we evaluate uh, people looking for uh, the worst case scenario, and sometimes uh, a medical medication refill can end up being that worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. um, but we're working to try to get better at that uh, with all of the process improvements that we try. So, when you talk about process, process and improvements, can you take our listeners through what some of that, where that might be the process and improvement? So uh, there's a, uh, and I don't want to, um, uh, I guess, be reductive in um, the patient experience by using like numbers and sure. inappropriate analogies, but um, but just to kind of bring you into, you know, to maybe a 1,000 foot view mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, a uh, hundred patients might come to the emergency department and um, 20 of them might have what's called a uh, uh, triage level that's uh, low. Like mm -hmm. they might be seen by our initial nurse and uh, that a, a initial nurse or person who screens them says that, you know, your complaint um, does not necessarily mean that you have a life-threatening emergency, but we need to talk more. Mm -hmm. And so let's say these people have what's called a level five um, type of complaint. Uh, the process and improvements and uh, new ways to try to get to those patients are going to try to find a balance between providers that are physicians and or uh, nurse practitioners or uh, physician assistants to find the mix of people that can both take care of those folks uh, faster mm -hmm. uh, and provide the right type of care for the people of these higher uh, uh, acuity levels, right? Now, I think you know, to be fair, there's a way to look at this as um, kind of covering up the problem, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. the, the, the the big problem is, is they can't get to see the primary care doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, by some set of, uh, you know, supply and demand, we don't have enough uh, physicians in the primary care space or, uh, you know, unintended consequences of uh, the way we uh, schedule appointments, like both you know, at Grady and any any other site, you know, that might make it difficult for patients, right? Mm -hmm. So we're kind of covering up that problem to a certain extent by um, doing all of these things. But you know, we can't uh, we can't have patients who uh, wait ten and twelve hours, even if it's for a medication refill, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's still not the right thing to do. Nobody shows up to yeah. to work knowing that they're going to put somebody in that situation. But you know, I think uh, the providers that uh, or, or my teammates, we kind of look at it like it's it's a hard problem because, you know, you don't want to cover up this. You do want this to be uh, something that everybody else cares about. But by signing up to do uh, emergency department work, you inherently know that uh, you might be some folks last resort. So we got to try to fix those uh, problems top to bottom. I want to shift now to the additional load for you all say our staff and, and trainees with the closure of Atlanta Medical Center and take our listeners through what you see in terms of what this additional load will be for Grady with the closure of AMC as it relates to staff and trainees. Uh, well, you know, I think, uh, you know, that's an important question and I'm glad you, uh, you know, put it like that. It kind of lets us uh, look at these sort of things separately. Uh, you know, I think there's going to be like a time will tell sort of uh, uh, approach to some of the issues with uh, staff uh, in in nursing because uh, you know there's going to be nurses that don't necessarily want to move 
and you know hopefully we'll be able to hire them uh, to fix some of our own uh, shortages. So when people talk about on the the news and things like that, uh, you know where you have blah 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 beds, uh, really those those aren't really beds until there's a nurse to staff them, right? So. Uh, the number of active beds and the number of physical beds. That that's uh, are, hold on. That's that's how it's assessed and that it's based. Oh yeah. So huh. so so yeah. So like you you can go uh, I guess maybe even on Wikipedia and, and it'll say oh you know the Grady Memorial has blah 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 beds right. So well I don't I don't uh, view uh, Wikipedia as an official source but. <laughs> <laughs> I know you yeah. well, exactly, but um, but you 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 might find a source saying that uh, a hospital has gotcha. uh, a set amount of you know physical spaces. Uh, you know, a lot of times if if there's not enough nurses to man those spaces, you can't put patients in those. So, mm. you know, the number of actual active beds uh, very often will differ from the number of physical spaces. So, um, finding ways to uh, have nurses staff those beds like i guess that's the i probably roll over that colloquialism that, that have nurses uh, that can work in areas where those physical beds are that's part of the problem and so uh, there's going to be a wait and see like how many of those we can hire and retain right from the you know 1000 foot view of the hospital mm-hmm. uh so you know that might help some of those problems but like not every one of those nurses are just going to move over to great it's just it's not going to work like that um, but, you know, we'll get some, uh, as far as the, uh, trainees are concerned, um, you know, that's, a um, a very difficult problem. And, and, uh, if, if anybody's been paying attention to, uh, kind of health policy, like globally, a similar situation happened, uh, in Philadelphia with the closing of, uh, Hahnemann, mm-hmm. uh, which was a big, uh, safety net hospital for them. And, you know, some of the things, uh, are, uh, kind of track and some don't. So, uh, you know, the AMC was part of a, uh, a larger health network. Mm-hmm. So uh, they are ex- actually arranged for those trainings to go to uh, other sites. Whereas what happened in Philadelphia, the, like the rug got pulled out um, uh, from underneath those those trainees, so to speak, uh, and they had to find places to go on their own. So um, fortunately, those trainees uh, didn't necessarily have to do that per se. They, had, they got moved. But, you know, at the same time, you showed up. Uh, as part of a contract to train at a, a particular site that was centrally located in, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the city. And then next month, you know, all of your clinical training has to be, you know, miles away from where you were probably living. I think that's hard. That's real hard for uh, a trainee. Uh, I think you know, how that affected the uh, the folks that I trained, you know, there is, uh, it, it's very easy to feel in, insecure mm-hmm. uh, when, you know, when mm-hmm. that sort of thing can just happen. Uh, and clearly, uh, you know, the uh, the proletariat, the, the residents and the trainees, they weren't necessarily privy to all of those yeah. discussions, right? So, um, you know, they were all going about their day like they're going to show up uh, and finish their training here. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's a, a level of insecurity that uh, might affect them. Uh, however, I think, you know, the ones that I work with, uh, our residents, you know, are committed to the people of Atlanta, uh, and they're going to show up, uh, pretty much no matter what. So I think, uh, you know, the, it could have some sort of a withering effect, but it's going to be a wait and see, uh, you know, in, in when Hahnemann closed, I think a lot of those surrounding programs, like absorb some of those, some of those trainees that didn't have a place, uh, and that won't be a problem, uh, in this situation necessarily. And- 
Doctor, as we begin to wrap up, and now comes the news that uh, Wellstar says the Atlanta Medical Center is going to actually close a little earlier than they initially cited, and said that they request, quote, request for folks who need emergency room, folks who need the emergency room, that, quote, request they choose other providers first when possible. Well, there's only really one other provider. I mean... What do you make it at? I mean, I think, um, you know, I guess, you know, what are, what are they going to say, right? Um, I mean, we have other emergency departments, that's for sure. It's not all uh, uh, Grady. I think, um, you know, a lot of those patients are going to end up going to other downtown type places. You know, Emory University Hospital Midtown is going to see an increase in volume also, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I think um, that Clifton Road campus is going to see uh, some increase in volume in addition to us. And I guess, you know, there's the, the patients that need the care is they're just not going to stop coming to the hospital. Right. So, uh, and, and finding, uh, uh, you know, another provider that's not an ER is, is, is going to be just as challenging, I think, before this, uh, if not more so after, right? So, I mean, I think what the, uh, it, it, it can be kind of, Depressing is not the right word, but it can be stressful mm-hmm. to just think about uh, all of those um, folks who are going to uh, require care and who are going to be uh, in the uh, in the waiting room for us to see. And you know, we want this and we want the right things to happen, uh, but that it still could be a stressful environment and it can get there uh, quickly. Uh, you know, I think what we all kind of have to do is, you know, examine what our as an individual, what our role could be, right? Um, in trying to fix this, again, like just treating that patient that's in front of you. Uh, and as a community, we got to look at what are the incentives that allowed all of this to happen, mm-hmm. right? So like there's, you know, incentives that you vote for uh, and there's incentives that, you know, like we kind of just assume, um, uh, you know, everybody is operating in the goodwill. And like, you know, we, we're not going to know what's in the heart of whoever, uh, all the people that drove that decision to close, right? But um, you know, we need to understand, like, there's a lesson that, like, you know, there's a private public health trust, and, you know, we kind of have a social contract that these services are going to be there for us. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be gained, um, not just negative energy from uh, from this sort of situation. As you and your colleague, yeah, absolutely, as you and your colleague, Professor yeah. Evans, ended that opinion piece, quote, emergency rooms already have long wait times. And specialist waiting lists can be months long, but pretending that there is nothing anyone can do is not the treatment that Atlanta needs right now. I guess that says it all, doctor. Yeah, I'd also like to thank Dr. Evans for uh, working with me. I'm, uh, if anybody knows me uh, personally, I'm an unmitigated disaster, and she really pulled me across the finish line for that I'm glad that you recognize that, (laughs) Dr. Anwar Osborne. But what you all do is so important. Never forget that. Dr. Anwar Osborne, an associate professor of both internal medicine and emergency medicine at Emory University. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And Closer Look continues here on WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, we just spoke with Dr. Anwar Osborne, and he took us through working in an emergency room of a hospital, and he shared insight as to how the closure of the Atlanta Medical Center would impact healthcare workers and 
and Grady and beyond. And while we know this news was jarring to some, when Wealth Star Health System announced it would close AMC, we did report that it was a bipartisan, public, private, and community level of support. When Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announced plans to to help Atlanta's Grady Hospital, which would feel the immediate impact. Today, I'm announcing that the state will dedicate some of our remaining ARPA allotment to provide $130 million to permanently increase Grady Memorial Hospital's capacity by nearly 200 beds. Grady is already in the process of adding more than 40 beds that will be available by November the 1st. So these additional 200 will come online in a rolling fashion as Grady moves into its new surgical tower next year. This is more than enough capacity to to cover the average patient census at AMC. Uh, That's what Governor Brian Kemp said, and you just heard what Dr. Osborne had to say. Now, the Atlanta Medical Center is located in the Old Fourth Ward neighborhood. Some call it Midtown. I say Old Fourth Ward. And albeit a cliche, the location is prime real estate. Now, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens has issued an executive order to stop redevelopment of that Atlanta Medical Center after it closes. And that came up. That leads to other questions, mainly what comes next or should come next. And most of the land sits in City Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari's district. We spoke about it earlier in the week. Council member, welcome. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. I appreciate it. Let's begin here, just because I, I didn't get a chance to ask you this, but when you first heard that AMC was closing, just your reaction to that? Um, I would have to say, if I'm, my honest answer was uh, surprise, shock, um, frustration and later quite frankly anger you say anger why because when i take a look at the procurement that wellstar made at the five hospitals and i look at the two that were shut down both were in both were in fulton county um in southern parts of fulton county that primarily helps low-income people of color and the three hospitals they chose to keep open were in affluent areas mm-hmm. so to me that says their bottom line is profit not the lives and health care of those who needed the most Mayor Andre Dickens says he was blindsided by it. You know, he would have wanted some more answers, would have wanted a meeting. Have you had an opportunity to talk to anybody from Wellstar? I'm just curious. Absolutely not. Do there you... has been no opportunity. Um, I wish there had been much. You know, we, we have we're very lucky that we have a mayor that has been super outspoken on this issue. Um, as he as he said, he was blindsided. There was no opportunity to try to meet to, to, to discuss anything. It reminds me of when Grady years ago there was that threat of Grady going under mm-hmm. and there was a huge community rally to bring forth the funds needed to keep Grady open because we all knew what would happen if Grady ever went under the spillover effect that would have on surrounding medical agencies how they would go under as a result and so the community rallied because there was communication because there was planning because there was foresight because, because people knew uh that the community needed that health care system mm-hmm. I think we could have done the same thing here and again, now we had to have another collaborative effort to get some money for Grady to help them support what we everyone says will be definitely an influx of patients. That $130 million that uh, Governor Brian Kemp is allowing to come to Grady, it's not a, a permanent fix, but it does help. It does help. It would also help if the governor would um, fight for Medicaid expansion. That would also be great. There are other things that we can do. Um, Yes, funding and continuing to give money to the Grady healthcare system is needed, but also long-term solutions are also needed. There has to be legislative and policy changes if we're gonna if we're gonna see what seems to be an increasingly floundering healthcare system in our state and in our city become better. 
to that note with this moratorium here, it's just, listeners, and I've had a couple of questions. Listeners said, well, you know, let's back up first, because if we can do this for something like an impending, what we know will be a development, we don't know what it could be. Um, right. why, why haven't Atlanta maybe done this in the past, too, for other developments you could think of? And I know you weren't on council then, but just your right. thoughts on if you think of the Gulch or, or you know, mm-hmm. Mercedes-Benz Stadium or any of these big developments that have come online within the last 10 years. Do you think maybe this will set some type of precedent that perhaps this is something, a tool the city should use uh, before big development can come in and, and really impact a community? Well, I hope this would set the precedent. Um, and to those pieces in the past, I could only speculate, but clearly it was the political will of certain people in power to have those developments go through for whatever their bottom line was. Um, like the Gulch deal would have been great to have seen transportation be utilized as a central piece of what is the heart of the city, um, especially development that's going to affect us for decades, if not centuries to come. In terms of this situation, um, I greatly applaud the mayor for taking this stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that it's an opportunity. You know, precedents are, da- are, are slippery are slippery slopes. Mm-hmm. So I would hope that, though, with developments such as these, where we're taking away a healthcare system, a trauma one unit, um, where we see uh, where we see an agency whose clear bo- clear initiative is profit, not not putting not putting the people who need healthcare the most first. Um, this was done with the intention of making sure that if the community was going to be robbed of a healthcare system, they certainly weren't going to have these 15 parcels sold out from underneath them without any input, because I can't think of anything worse than taking away people's primary mode of healthcare. And then on top of it, then taking the land that supported that healthcare system and selling it to the, to the highest bidder for, for who knows what, without any community input Before that we- simply cannot be allowed. Before we continue on with the, the possibilities a bit, I want to go back because you did say you, mm-hmm. you, you all have not had a chance to talk to Wellstar. Have you reached out? Do you want to? Is it worth now even still having a conversation with Wellstar about that? Well, it's always worth the conversation. I mean, with this situation, we're, I'm, I'm following the mayor's lead. Mm-hmm. He's 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 pushing for them to meet with him. He's having conversations. This is a situation where I'm supporting I'm supporting my mayor because I'm in lockstep and in agreement with everything he is doing. Um, and I, I'm very grateful to the administration that they've given uh, they've given me heads up every step of the way as well. So there's also been communication. Um, of course, it's worth having a conversation with HealthStar. They're still a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And so if we, they're still going to be impacting lives, the lives of people in Atlanta, whether or not AMC is open. So mm-hmm. the conversations must continue, even if we are not happy with their current actions. So let's talk about what this executive order does. I know it directs, I believe it's the Department of City Planning, because pretty much even for whatever your development's going to be, you have to start, I've seen the city of Atlanta, you, you got to get permits and zoning applications, all that. And for our listeners who are not uh, familiar with what exactly this executive order will do, tell them. I mean, it essentially allowed, essentially puts a moratorium on any development at this location. As you heard the mayor say, this, you know, this area was a corner storm for the old Fourth Ward community and the city of Atlanta um, in many ways. It was a job generator, it was an economic stimulant, it took care of people, especially after the after Wellstar closed the South Fulton location. And so now um, the, the intention of this is to ensure that the community has an opportunity to have it that we, one, measure the impact of this closure because it's happened so quickly that we don't know yet the impact that it will have. But two, making sure that after we measure that impact, the community has a say and that we have a say in what goes in this area to best meet the needs of these neighborhoods that are being robbed of this healthcare system. 
So in other words, they, they, the city won't take any applications for rezoning, building permits, mm -hmm. land. Right. Do we have more data? Yeah. Now let me ask you this: at 15 parcels of land, that that's 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 good property. That's prime real estate over there. You and I both know that. That's in your district. Um, typically, as you and I both know, and everybody else listening, usually what goes up is something big <laughs> and expensive, and Correct. housing. Um, your thoughts on on that? Uh, I mean, we are in desperate need of housing. We're building out, what, a 20, 22,000 unit deficit where mm -hmm. building slowly built since the 90s and we're less dense than we were in the 40s and the 50s. So yes, we're in desperate need of housing because when there's shortages, costs go up, basic, basic, uh, basic economics. So yes, do we need housing? For sure. Do we need increased only luxury housing? No. There's also the conversation of affordable housing. Um, and I'm not talking just for people who make 40, 50, 60,000. I'm also talking sure. about folks that make under $20,000 a year. Mm. Talking about supportive housing, transitional housing for our unsheltered population, um, housing for our city employees, housing for our working force. Um, so this is also an opportunity, I think, with the mayor taking a lead on this, it's an opportunity for us to really sit down and take a look at something that is in the heart of Old Fourth Ward, as you said, I also call it Old Fourth Ward, and the heart of Old Fourth Ward, um, and a major area that has you know transit connectivity, mm -hmm. and has an opportunity for high density, and really take a look and see how can we we may be losing this huge healthcare system, but how can we meet the needs of housing in a city that is in desperate need of more options? Let me ask you this, and, and I, don't, I don't know the value of that property. I just know it's prime real mm -hmm. estate, right? Could you all having discussions about perhaps maybe working with partners, you know, that whole public-private partnerships mm -hmm. and trying to secure that that property? Or do you think it's possible to get another medical center there? I think that anything is possible mm -hmm. in terms of the medical center. Um, the truth is, is that with it, AMC is a very outdated center. Mm -hmm. And this is where a frustration more because even though the lift to keep it a medical center would be heavy, that's what the work is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, helping the most under-resourced communities is harder. It's easier to help people who are affluent, who have the resources, who have the privilege to pay their bills, who have the ability to get from one place to the other without with alternative modes of transit. It's harder to do the work for the people who need it most, but that's exactly why we're supposed to be in this work. Mm -hmm. That's why the, that's what this job is. So yes, it's possible to do another medical center there. It would take a lot of work. It would take an overhaul. It would take a lot of money, but it's possible and I think worth it. Um, but at the same time, it's also possible to do a public-private partnership to talk about our housing needs and doing mm -hmm. uh, a lot of things there, whether it's uh, centers for people who are experiencing um, homelessness or addiction or mental health issues and partnership with other city partners who are doing the work. There's, with a, a land amount this big, um, quite frankly, the possibilities are endless. But again, um, we'll see with the mayor what happens with this, with this moratorium, with what the data provides us. With this moratorium, I imagine then the city would also be doing some type of feasibility study, trying to get uh -huh. a value of it. Maybe if Wellstar, if, if y'all are you know, speaking nicely to each other to see what kind of, you know, financial terms they're looking for, is that you have to do something in this time. Right. So what will y'all be doing? I think that still remains to be seen. I think absolutely a feasibility study and value. Um, from my understanding, there's been feasibility studies of the hospital in the past. I have not seen those things, mm -hmm. but I think this is the opportunity to data to data gather on the feasibility study of the hospital. 
of the value of the land because parts of this, while while the main buildings are in District Five, it's also in District Two. So that's weird. It's also been active. I know. It's weird. There's a, across the street. It's in one council member's district, and then on mm-hmm. the other, that that's a weird. Uh, <laughs> well, they're going to be redistricting. Uh, are you concerned that that can even be further complicated because it could be in somebody to be in three districts? Who knows? Uh, it's almost as if. Um, politicians shouldn't draw, draw their own boundary lines or if you know an independent party should actually be doing that but <laughs> they, it is what it is i don't know if it'll be further it'll be I, I will say that the current council is working to make things with redistricting is working really hard to make sure that that type of split doesn't happen anymore so um we have some brilliant folks that i trust deeply that are that are working on redrawing the maps and there'll be community input sessions on that so um, please, if you're listening, show up to those. Um, they're coming. They're they're in the coming weeks. But um, it is weird that it's shared in the district. But also, um, in ways, it's also great because it means we're not. I'm not alone in the fight, and I have somebody like Councilmember Faroki who's amazing to help me through this. Let me ask you, Councilmember Bakhtiari, if you had, if they said, "Here's your magic wand. You know where I'm going," mm-hmm. and poof, this is what you want. What would you want there? If it wasn't a state-of-the-art hospital that actually wasn't private, but actually public and accepted all forms of Medicaid and actually allowed for expansion. To well, I think you've just answered the question. <laughs> come on, come um, on now. <laughs> come on now. I would love for that to happen. But if we were also, uh, I think, I think having a state-of-the-art hospital that is actually when I take a look at the fact that we have so many hospitals shutting down in rural Georgia and ambulatory services going offline mm-hmm. and funding drying up because it's not, it's not public it's private mm-hmm. um i would love for there to be a, a state-of-the-art medical center there that was driven by multiple partners at the table and that prioritized treating everyone um despite their economic status their economic status their their skin color their their background their ability i mean we're living in a state and we're living in a country where healthcare is increasing by the day um, where insurance is becoming less and less affordable. And it's, I mean, if you, you know, pray that you don't have to ride in an ambulance or you're going to be in debt for God knows how long. Mm-hmm. So having something there that's affordable for people who need it the most, I mean, my, I'm terrified about the homicide rates that will go up as a result of this and the well, people that will die. And, having a, this. and also folks saying, look, we need, we know we have Grady. We need yeah. another trauma center of that level. And mm-hmm. you and I both know that trauma victims uh, they've been flown from all throughout the the state to to Grady and to Atlanta Medical Center what does it say then to you about the will of this community because I've been here for 20 some years and I've always been told about the Atlanta way and how Atlanta comes together in crisis we've talked about how this has happened before when we thought Grady's doors were going to shut right and everyone came together is this an opportunity now that you are championing that this is a crisis moment for the city. And this is a time when all hands are on deck, everybody from different sectors, public, private, philanthropic, whatever, we got to come together. Is that, is that really truly the solution you think the best solution? Community is always a solution. Um, I mean, the thing is, is we become most open to positive change when we hit rock bottom. So in the loss, there's an opportunity for community to reconvene and to be reminded of what is important and why this fight is so important because in every struggle, people are, people are brought together. Um, 
And I think that's an opportunity here. There's always opportunities in failure, right? Like, yes, it is devastating the way this played out. I am very upset with the lack of consideration by the board and leadership of Wellstar, um, not just to the people they serve, but to their own staff um, and the lack of communication. But at the same time, this, this loss is an opportunity for the city to not only lead, but to listen to listen to the community members that have been doing this work for decades, to the people who are experts on their own living conditions, to alternative forms of medicine, to to all the partners at the table who are willing to put money forth and to to do everything they can to help to help serve this community. Um, there's always a positive with things like this because it strengthens and brings people together. Councilmember Liliane Bakhtiari, the Atlanta Medical Center is located in her district. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer for today was Daniel. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And remember... Go Cardinals. No, I'm just kidding. Go Atlanta Braves. Don't send me your emails. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.